Hello, everyone. I'm Julius Torelli, and welcome to Off the Cuff, the Evacor Healthcare Podcast, where we talk about everything RBM, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And today we have with us Eric Gracious, who's our Chief Medical Officer at Evacor Healthcare, and Dr. Robert Good, who's with the Carl Health System and the Health Alliance Medical Plan. Hi, Bob. Hi, Eric. Good morning. Hey, Julius. A lot to talk about today, and I thought maybe, Bob, you could uh, maybe give us a little introduction as to uh, who you are and, and how long you've been there at Carl, how you got there, and, uh, and maybe start us off with that. Sure. I'm a general internist. I've been uh, working at Carl um, for the last 25 plus years. Uh, before that, I was in private practice in, in Iowa. Uh, I am the current associate chief medical officer for Carl Health Systems. Uh, with an emphasis on medical management, utilization management in our system. Carl is a 800 plus beds, uh, well over a thousand providers at this point, and we have a six hospital system um, with multiple uh, areas of expertise. And we also have the Carl Illinois College of Medicine, which uh, I'm a clinical professor at. So uh, uh, this is just a, a project that uh, we thought was useful from lots of different perspectives. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, so I, I know that uh, you uh, authored a, a white paper that I think we're going to be making uh, available, uh, and you've been working with Evacor now for the better part of five years, going on six years. Um, and and I thought, you know, as I looked at that white paper and have, have gotten to know you all this uh, all this time, and I, I've got to say, I think that uh, you know one of the things I always appreciated uh, about you and and Carl was your hands-on sort of approach uh, as far as you know the CMO approach uh, many of the uh, many of our, our clients tend to look at us as a vendor kind of turn things over to us but you um, always from the very beginning kept that uh, very hands-on approach and and looked at us I think more as a partner uh, than as a vendor and I think that um, made all the difference and really uh, the, the success of the program um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about the, uh, the you know, your, what I think was a very novel concept, uh, right? And what the uh, Carl Financial Assistance Program uh, was doing. So from the beginning, April Vogelsang, who's been my dyad partner, together felt like we, we needed to really follow best practice throughout all of Carl. Our, our opportunities and our job descriptions really crossed over. Uh, to both sides of Carl and Health Alliance. And best practice is really the best way of taking care of patients. It's evidence-based medicine. And you're absolutely right. We, we emphasize the need to work with Evacor uh, as a partner, as a way of, of seeking out what is the best practice on a, on a regular basis, working with our best practice committees. We have best practice committees, both on the inpatient and the ambulatory side at Carl and, and um, making sure we're consistent throughout the, the information that we're giving to our providers. At the same time, Carl has, as many non-for-profit institutions have, a, um, um, a financial assistance program. And that financial assistance program has growing uh, in numbers. And uh, as people maybe have ins insurance, but their insurance deductibles are so high, they can't afford to really make those payments. Or people are losing jobs, particularly now during the time of COVID, but even before that time, the, the 
the need for financial assistance. And we have right around 32 or 3,000 people in that financial assistance program in the Carl system. And we were, th we were thinking, how do we deliver best practice care to those people, just like we, just equivalent to how we would do that in the, in the, in the insurance world. Uh, and so that's where we started working with Evacor. How do we best put together a, a product, a system, so that people getting financial assistance have the same level of best practice care that everybody else has? Yeah, because this, this population, as, as you know, just uh, for people who don't understand, I think, you know, it's a, it's a tough population because, uh, you know, they tend to be indigent. They, they don't see their primary care physician or don't have a primary care physician, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the most expensive uh, services, right, as their primary care. Um, and, and the novel part of it is we've, we've never really worked uh, to, to manage that population, which I think is, is challenging. Um, I, I think one of the things that we also uh, here at Evacor sort of pride ourselves on is our is our guidelines. And um, Eric, maybe you could talk a little bit about how our guidelines, how we see them, and maybe how they're different from um, what we see in most, uh, let's say, uh, you know, health plans and coverage policies and and, and other uh, RBMs. Uh, thanks, Julius. Um, it's a great it's a great point. A lot of the evidence-based guidelines that are out there for other benefit managers and utilization managers are really built around the reimbursement methodology. So you it's looking at what are the reasons we would we would pay for this this claim, this CPT code. And we philosophically took a very different approach to create our clinical guidelines, and they really are best practice guidelines more so than coverage policies. So they're written by clinicians for clinicians. So we, we framed our guidelines around the clinical problem being solved. You know, so for radiology, the, the question we're asking is what's, what is the right imaging that this patient needs at this moment for this clinical condition? Or what's the right interventional treatment for this cardiac issue that they're having for a cardiology patient? Or what's the right drug treatment for this cancer patient if it's medical oncology? So, it, and we've, we've written our, our guidelines around those clinical problems, which make them, we feel easier for clinicians to apply and we make them freely available on our website for anyone. So um, we would, then on the back end, we take those clinical policies and convert them into, into authorizations, which tell our, our, our insurance clients when, which claims to pay for. Uh, but we, we, <clears throat> we solicit feedback from a large number of in, uh, external experts. We work with the major professional societies. Uh, you know, version of our guidelines are available as a clinical decision support, uh, so, you know, uh, approved by Center for Medicare Services. So we're, we're very publicly out there with our clinical guidelines and we have dedicated teams of folks whose, whose sole job is to stay caught up on the evidence and make sure that we're bringing those evidence changes to our guidelines in as close to real time as possible so that patients are getting the best available care. You know, the majority of our, our guideline work anymore is updating existing guidelines. So when, um, I'll deal with the new really quickly because it's a smaller subset and that's generally when there's a new technology that's released or a or an emerging condition. Take COVID-19 is a perfect example. You know, we had this condition that didn't exist in the clinical world a year ago. And so we had to really monitor evidence until there was sufficient evidence to create guidelines. 
Um, usually it's a little cleaner than that. When a new drug therapy comes out, for example, we know what, know the information that supports the FDA approval. We can look at the clinical evidence behind it and, you know, make, create a guideline appropriate, you know, appropriate to the level of evidence um, and looking at that. With our, and that can happen very quickly. We can have a, we can have a new, a new drug or device in the system as, in as little as four or five days after FDA approval. So we have a very rapid process to get that in place. So they're not universally sort of uh, always appreciated, right? Especially with new, new clients, I think have some, some challenges with it sometimes. Two, three years ago, I think it was two years ago, the AMA put together with the American Hospital Association uh, the criteria around prior authorization and they invited me to be on their committee thinking oh, wow. that I was a medical officer for Carl. Well, I was, but I was also a medical officer for Health Alliance. And when I started talking about the purpose of prior authorization and in, 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 in evidence review, I suddenly uh -huh. became their outcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they wanted to hear that. They, they had a really a one-sided uh, piece of this. And, and my point is, and I believe it's still to be true, when we all do things perfectly, and I include myself in that, I mean, as much as I've reviewed medical literature and tried to do, as many doctors do, the right thing, you still have a lot, of, lot to learn. And, and um, you know, there's evidence out there that changes and is dynamic and we have to keep up with it. And, um, and we just can't do it all, particularly if you get a little out of bounds of your, of your specialty knowledge. Um, and still trying to help the patient do it the right way. So I think all of this kind of helps create, uh, you know, the guidelines to help the practice of medicine overall. You know, when, when the AMA put out that, uh, what I call 21 point manifesto. You'll notice they didn't use my name in there too. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see of the, name, of the 10 or 11 of us that were on that committee, I think they, they excluded me, but that's okay. But they, um, you know, the, the amazing thing was when I read through that, when you, if you excluded the ones that were related specifically to pharmacy benefit management, if you just looked at the RBM one, I was amazed at how much Evacor was already doing of those, of those, however many of those. Almost all of them. Yeah. Almost all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the biggest complaint we see is people, is other companies who don't have turnaround time. That is the most critical piece of all of this, really, for the practitioner they don't mind it as long as it gets done. Yeah. Bob, did, did the, the way the guidelines were set up, did that influence you all at, at HAMP uh, when you were, I know there's a lot that goes into making a decision when you decide to partner with, with you know, a radiology benefit management company, but did those, the way they were set up and the fact that they were more clinical as opposed to sort of procedurally based, did that influence you at all? Or? Again, our, our emphasis all along to every specialty area has been based upon best practice. Uh, I really have not talked about with any, it, it's not about the financial end of this. It really is what is best for the people, uh, or the people that we're taking care of. And I think that's what physicians relate to. And we can demonstrate uh, you know, that, that level of competency that this, this is what the best practice, and quite frankly, if there was something that came along that uh, a, a physician disagreed with and there was medical literature to support it, uh, you know, that's the way we turn. We, this is not in concrete. This is a guideline. Uh, there are always exceptions to every, you know, there are unique patients out there 
with unique problems uh, that we have to take in consideration. And that's, that's why we have physicians as medical directors. It's, it's, not, <laughs> it's not to sit here and say this, this is yes or no based upon um, you know, an Evacor guideline. It, it is a guideline to help us practice medicine better and to keep safety in mind for our patients by, by not overutilizing. So that's been our emphasis all along, and I believe our uh, medical staff responded to that in a very positive way. And are there times when they disagreed? Absolutely. Uh, and were there subgroups that disagreed with certain areas? Yeah. Uh, but by and large, uh, when they understood where the medical literature was leading us to, and the decisions we have to make in general, it was it was accepted. And I, again, it was not a financial decision as much as it is a it, what is best practice, what is the best outcomes for our patients. That's exactly how we feel internally at Evacor. You know, our culture is such that if if we feel that if you just do the right thing and you do the best, follow the best practices and and such you will eliminate all the waste. And that's where the savings actually ends up coming from. Not so much by just saying no and denying cases, which is, you know, the perception, um, I think, that, that sort of exists out there. Um, but, but again, if you just do the right thing, uh, it seems like that, that's, that saves money as well. And, and it needs to be done in a timely fashion. Yeah. Uh, I think where prior authorization or, or external review processes in general get into trouble is, is the length of time in which decisions are made. And that makes us very uncomfortable as physicians because we can't, we want to take care of our patients. Somebody's got something that needs to be done. We want to get at it. Uh, and so we don't want to delay. Uh, and so it was, it, it, we really worked hard at Carl to work at the process so that this process occurred in a timely fashion. We had a, an answer or we had a way for a, uh, a face-to-face or physician-to-physician discussion. Uh, and when we had those unique cases, yeah, sometimes I had to dig into the medical literature right along with the specialist to, to come up with a, a, the right answer for the patient. So, so in this study that, that you uh, that did this, this pilot, let's call it, uh, I know the goal was, again, to deliver this evidence-based care and improved outcomes for this, what, let's call it, challenging you know, patient population. Um, so how, how did you pull this off? How'd you set it up? Well, we, what we did, we went out and we looked at, of the 33,000 or so patients in, in, the, uh, uh, in the Carl Financial Assistance Program, we really thought we, we probably had six to 7,000 people that were totally uninsured uh, or had Health Alliance as a supplement insurance and so that's a group of people we looked at. If they had other forms of insurance uh, and could not afford the 50% uh, range of, of the charges uh, or care, then they, they fell into that bucket. As you said, they, oftentimes the emergency, is, emergency room is where they get care delivered. Uh, and their ability to have any type of case management was also very limited. And so they'd be, come to the hospital, be discharged, and then not have adequate follow-up care. So the post-acute care program was not uh, optimal. So we made an effort to make sure they had primary care physicians, and we had made an effort to make sure they had case management when appropriate. And I think that's uh, along with uh, getting the right type of care, uh, meeting the best practice standards of care, 
for diagnostic purposes, it's really what made the difference. And uh, what the results look like? Yeah, so we ended up with about a little shy of 21,000 patients in the two-year period of time in this program. Uh, about a little shy of 2% were placed in the case management uh, that not only were called, but were actually engaged with our case managers. And with that, uh, we had about uh, 3,400, 3,400 to 3,500 case reviews, 3,456 it says. Turnaround time from the external review was 0.84 days. So that's, that's pretty remarkable. Really, that really doesn't demonstrate any major delay in time. Uh, we started out with a best practice rate in the first year of about 89%, and by the second year, it had increased to 97.6%. That's also pretty remarkable. Uh, the result of all of that was a 19% decrease in readmission rate and a 9% decrease in emergency visits per 1,000 rate. Uh, and that's compared to our overall hospital that really saw a 5% readmission rate increase and a 2% decrease in the emergency room. So um, that's a pretty substantial difference. That's and it's a, I think it's a result of getting the right test at the right time and providing case management uh, to those folks. And how did the patients get to the case managers? Uh, they were identified by risk uh, analysis. We, we have risk scores for everybody. Uh, and if their risk scores are high, or if there's somebody who had a history of readmission or extensive ER uh, visits, they were placed into this risk pool and contact. I think our, our overall, our reach rate, according to our data here, is, was 62.1%, and our engagement rate, about a third of the folks, about 33%. Any, um, any data on, on the, the, the difficult cases or the ones that had to go to peer-to-peer -peer and and things like that? Um, very few, very, very few. Uh, so what we, the way this was set up is in working with our partnership at Evacor, uh, they would get an initial external review. Uh, that decision, if it was disagreed with, uh, say there was a denial uh, and it was disagreed with, that would now come to a medical director, uh, Carl uh, Least from Health Alliance, and uh, th that, that medical director would review the case as we would do with any other insurance uh, product and make a decision. Uh, and that became a, but very few of those. Great to hear. When I, you know, first saw the results that led to the white paper, uh, you know, I was excited. I was so, so proud that we got to be a part of it, that, you know, just to support Bob and Carl team in this great work. It's really, it's really innovative thinking and it's a really innovative approach to solve a problem that no one's really been able to do before. And I really feel like once this information gets out there, there's a lot of health systems out there that are, have a similar size and demographic to Carl that really could, could take this and run with it and you know, both improve the quality of the care for these, these really challenging, uh, these folks that are just in really challenging situations and also help control some of their uncompensated costs. It, it takes, which is where it really takes a team. So everything from the revenue cycle at Carl all the way through uh, to the physicians, providers, and the staff uh, that has to work through the, the process and submitting these uh, for review. So uh, 
it takes everybody to make this work. But I think in the outcome, in the end, you can see, you know, if you can get a 20% reduction in readmissions, that's big. That's big. <laughs> that's big. Totally agree. So, Bob, one of the things I think that we, uh, you know, we, we see a lot um, internally and we don't necessarily uh, talk about it uh, much is, again, that the, the, the process of the overutilization and applying the evidence-based guidelines, uh, you know, to those patients. And so we see, you know, I think if you look at our country, uh, you know, we tend to be probably the most tested population that has ever existed, right? And, and, and to a degree, um, physicians have come to rely on tests. And I think to also, to, to some degree, we have trained patients, you know, to rely on those tests. And so it's not infrequent in the cardiology space, as an example. But that testing comes at a cost. And it's not just the cost of the test. I think that it comes also in the cost of um, you know, things like uh, false positive findings and stuff, all of that, those false positives lead to excessive testing, right? Additional testing, whether it's just a follow-up test or whether it's a, another test or, you know, so another form of a test or uh, invasive tests like biopsies and things like that. Have you had any experience with that? I don't think there's a physician living that can't say that it, you know, IHI says 30% of what we do in healthcare in the United States is unnecessary testing. I don't think there's one of us who have not ordered a test that we said, God, I wish I hadn't ordered that test. Because it leads to the next test. So I, I use an example, and this is a true story, a patient that goes to 72-year-old male, non-smoker, uh, goes and pays $100 to a parking lot truck that pulls up in our community and gets an ultrasound of his aorta. He also gets a carotid ultrasound, which he didn't need, and a variety of other tests. That ultrasound of the aorta, of course, was normal. He didn't meet the guidelines, shouldn't have had it done. But they said, ah, you've got a cyst on your kidney. You need to have a CT scan to evaluate the cyst in your kidney. So the the CT was done, and the, and the radiologist says, oh, that's a benign cyst. Don't worry about it. But you got a mass on your liver, and you need to have that biopsy. Big mass. So patient goes off, has a biopsy of the liver. Turns out to be a hemangioma. After four units of blood, the fourth unit, he has a transfusion reaction. He goes into renal failure. Uh, after 10 days of 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 uh, dialysis, he's finally able to get off of the dialysis and get kind of somewhat back to a normal life. We almost killed a 72-year-old, perfectly healthy male with because we did a test that was not indicated. Yep. And we see this not uncommonly, where we order a test. It could be something simple. It could be a blood test, like a sed rate, and it leads us down a road that it really, we shouldn't have gone down. When we look at healthcare outcomes, and you know, we are we are flattening off our uh, the average life expectancy of American citizens is relatively flattened off, and yet the rest of the world is continuing to improve that. We spend more money in the ambulatory world than anybody else, and uh, it's a lot of it's due. Thirty percent of it's due 
to test that we really did need to do in the first place. And I think that's where helping us all understand what is the best practice, what is the best way of caring for people, and to get to the diagnosis and the treatment in the most appropriate and shortest way of doing that. And I, that's, in my mind, what external reviews help us do. It helps kind of set the stage as to how we all should practice and care best for our patients. So Bob, where do you go from here now? So it sounds like that, uh, that program was successful. Is it, is it, do you plan on expanding that or how does it, what it Yeah, we, we've continued the pilot. The pilot is no longer a pilot. Right. It's yeah. now part embedded into our, into our system. Uh, we think that, that this has been successful. It's good for our patients. Um, and the, the providers have gotten used to it. Uh, I think they're recognizing the benefit of it as well. You have to feel the mission. You have to know what you're going toward and what you're trying to accomplish. And I think that's really everybody on this call, what we've been able to do together as partners to help the people we're trying to serve. Well, thank you guys for all your work and uh, cooperation and professional courtesies that you've given through the years because it's uh, it really benefits the patients in the end. And I think that's all we're trying to do is maximize uh, the mission in improving healthcare. Thank you as well. You know, we, as uh, we've always uh, appreciated the, uh, as, as I call it, the partnership uh, and, and the way you, uh, uh, you know, treated us as well. So I think, and I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, the, that partnership has worked so well. I'm Julius Torelli for Evacor Healthcare. You've been listening to Off the Cuff.